What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Flag to Flag on Fox Sports 640. I'm Jeremy Kaufman, and we got some NASCAR to talk after a huge weekend for the series in Nashville, Tennessee. It's been 37 years since there was a cup race in Nashville, and boy, did the crowd turn out. It was kind of a surreal sight to see because we haven't had a sellout with this pandemic in a long time, since the 2020 Daytona 500, that we have sold out every seat in the grandstand, and even that race was delayed until Monday, so we didn't really get to see the full sold-out crowd. Well, Nashville was packed, and I know there were some issues for the fans getting in and out of there and fighting on social media about coolers or whatever it was. You know, I'm sure the track will fix all that stuff next year, so I really hope people don't hold that against them and don't come back next year. But the crowd atmosphere was electric at Nashville. I can't remember the last time we had an audience like that that was so just excited and loud and all of this stuff. It was really great to see that crowd out there, and they got quite the show at Nashville Super Speedway. Of course, the winner, we all know who it is, Kyle Larson. Uh, honestly, I think I can just start repeating this show at this point. He just keeps winning every week. It's, in, it's crazy when you look at Kyle Larson's stats from just the last month and a half or so in the Cup Series. Now, he got off to a decent start, got that win at Las Vegas out the third week of the season, or the fourth week of the season, rather, and then he pretty much was doing decent. You know, he had some good finishes, had some bad finishes, nothing that was setting the world on fire, but still running consistent. But since the Darlington race on Mother's Day, the Goodyear 400, Kyle Larson has finished in the top two every single race, including winning three straight points races, and the All-Star race was in there. So in all reality, he's won four weeks in a row. I can't remember the last time somebody did that at the cup level. It had to be Jimmy Johnson back in 2007, I think he did that, um, when he was racing in the playoffs uh, for the championship against Jeff Gordon. He won four straight weeks right there at the end of it. Um, So I I really am... uh, just blown away by this. Everybody always said Kyle Larson gets to Hendrick. It's going to be unreal. He'll be the best driver of all time. And I've heard that so long for so many years and he was doing good with Ganassi, but you never really got the chance to see what he could do. And it's nothing against Ganassi. They're a decent organization, but they're not Hendrick Motorsports. You just can't make that argument. He's got a major upgrade with this ride and he is doing amazing things with this. It just... I didn't even see this coming in this this point of the season. He's got to be the championship favorite. I think everybody has got to say, if there's one guy you're looking at right now over this last month, you got to be thinking, oh, well, Larson's obviously got the best of everybody. He's starting on the pole this weekend once again because he got such a great finish. We have no qualifying for the Pocono race, so he'll have another pole position heading into Pocono next week. Um, this team is just on such a roll, and what I think is impressive to me about their performance right now. You talk about a second at Darlington, a very unique racetrack. They ran well there. Darlington's coming up to start the playoffs, so we know that they ran well, and they're going to have that for the Southern 500, hopefully be able to bring a car that runs similar to what they were able to do in the Goodyear 400. Now you look ahead to Dover, a concrete one-mile oval, and what happens? Kyle Larson, he gets a second-place finish. And then we go to Circuit of the Americas, this crazy four-mile road course, And he ends up finishing second. It's unbelievable. 
Then, if you think that's crazy, he goes and wins the next three weeks straight, plus an all-star race shoved in there. So Kyle Larson, he's the favorite. He is setting the series on fire. And when you look at the points, you know, it was just a few months ago, I thought Denny Hamlin had the regular season championship in the bag because he had such a huge lead, I couldn't imagine him losing it. I mean, we're talking more than a 100-point advantage. And Larson was down in seventh or eighth in points. Kyle is only nine points behind Denny Hamlin from the points lead who did not have a great race at Nashville early in the race. He came on the radio and was saying, guys, we're in trouble. And we never really even saw Denny Hamlin the entire race. He came home in the 21st position. So he lost himself some points. And, you know, we tend to overlook the regular season championship because a win gets you in. We reset in the playoffs. But not only is there a trophy on the line, but there are 15 playoff points, 15 bonus points that will help you as you advance through the rounds up for grabs for finishing first in the standing. So that is a big deal. And we are closing in. We are getting to that mark where we're about the final 10 races before the playoffs. In fact, we have basically 10 to go right here. Um, So Larson is in this battle for the points lead. And if Denny Hamlin doesn't start running up front quick, I don't see him being able to hold Kyle Larson off. I I wouldn't be surprised if Larson's the points leader leaving the first race of Pocono this weekend, barring any unforeseen crazy issues he might have. But uh, Kyle Larson continuing to blow everyone away. Hendrick Motorsports in general, they've been having top two finishes left and right. Larson, up until this weekend, had won every single stage in uh, since the Coke 600. We're talking seven of the last nine stages, something crazy like that. I think now it's... With the way that he went, uh, eight of the last 11 stages, uh, he, he has won. It is unreal, and it, I'm nervous if I'm racing Kyle Larson because I don't know what anybody's going to do to chase this guy down. He seems untouchable. He's showing no signs of weakness, and we'll see if he can continue it into Pocono, a very unique racetrack. Nothing else quite like that. Of course, there's nothing quite like Nashville Super Speedway either, and I honestly was very curious for this weekend. I had this one circled on my calendar because on this show, I've always talked about how I miss the standalone events of my NASCAR childhood, which was that 2007, 2008 area when I first started watching back when I was in middle school and the Xfinity and Truck Series had standalones at Nashville Super Speedway, uh, Gateway, um, we had racing at Mansfield Motorsports Park, uh, Circuit to Giles Villeneuve up there in Canada, so many different unique ovals that were on the schedule that you don't really see. Uh, Memphis is another one that comes to mind, and we really got away from that. So I've always wanted those tracks back. They hold a special place in my heart. And then when they announced Nashville, that was the one that I expected the least because I heard nothing about it. You always hear stories about they're doing this at Rockingham. They're doing this at uh, North Wilkesboro. They're, you know, Gateway made a return. You hear all these different stories. Nashville kind of snuck up under the radar And all of a sudden, we have this race, and it's a cup race on top of it. So the question I think everybody was asking, what is this race going to be like? Because some people didn't seem thrilled by the decision. Others seemed like they loved it. I liked it because even though Nashville Super Speedway looks like a Vegas or a Kansas, those cookie-cutter mile-and-a-halves, it is so different, and you just don't notice it to the naked eye as much. And I learned a lot of things about this track I didn't realize this weekend. Now, obviously, it's a concrete racetrack. It's got a, um, a curved tri-oval on the front straightaway. Uh, one of the things I thought was really unique about it is it's such a uh, intense angle compared to Vegas or uh, Kansas where you make that turn at the start-finish line. It's like a full-on corner. You have practically two straightaways leading up to that. And so the front straightaway at Nashville, as you might have heard during the broadcast, is actually longer than it is at Charlotte. 
but the racetrack is smaller, only one and a third mile, concrete surface, and low banked tight corners. You look from the, from overhead and you compare it to a Vegas or one of these other mile and a half, you can really see that difference in the corners. And the lack of banking really makes this almost a hybrid short track. And NASCAR did the right move, I think, bringing the 750 horsepower package to this race. I thought the racing really throughout the whole weekend was phenomenal. We had side-by-side racing. We had comers and goers. We had tire wear. The only issue that we really had to face on track which I didn't expect, we didn't hear much about leading up to it, the brakes. This crazy scenario ends up unfolding where you see Ryan Blaney have the brake issue. He started it all off, and he had issues from the get-go. Ryan Blaney damaged the car just getting onto the track, had to go to the back of the field, was trying to make progress, and we're talking first 40 laps here, and that's it. Blaney's got a brake rotor broken. He's in the wall. Wow, that's surprising to see that. But then it just keeps happening. Almost every caution of the race was because a rotor exploded and it was like the right front blew and they went straight into the wall. We had other cautions because people hit pieces of rotors. Bubba Wallace uh, was furious on the radio after he hit a rotor and it was so insulting because I had the NASCAR official radio up on scanner while we were watching that. And just before that incident, NASCAR radioed to ask if there was debris since they were getting reports to the tower Uh, from the tower, rather, to the flag stand. So they were probably going to throw a caution for that, and Bubba finds it and spins out. So a lot of this seemed to be brake issues. And I think what probably happened here is you have such little banking, but you have high speeds. We're seeing guys go from 180 miles an hour at the end of the front stretch down to some cars below 120, so heavy on the brakes. I don't think the teams anticipated this. I don't know what the oversight was, if it was just that we hadn't been here in so long, if this wasn't noticed in testing, we don't have a ton of practice before, but a lot of guys went too aggressive with the brake package, and we saw that bite so many teams throughout this race. Really, it was topsy-turvy. You just didn't know who was going to be the next guy to blow a a brake rotor. You know, Chase Briscoe had an issue with that. A couple of other drivers got into the wall. We had a very bizarre crash where it was the 77 and the 17 both crashing at the same time, and it appeared one of them blew a rotor, and then the other car behind them just happened to hit it and slam the walls. So you had two cars basically look like they blew right fronts in the same corner. It was such a weird scenario. Um, so I think that that might be an isolated incident. I don't think we're going to see this problem again when, when and if we come back to Nashville Super Speedway next year. I think you're going to see a big difference now that teams have had this race under them. There were a couple of hiccups at the race. A lot of it had to do more with the navigations uh, of fans getting in and out of the stadium and getting uh, coolers in and out and all that stuff. The traffic was a mess. They had to delay the start of the race. All that will be fixed, I'm sure, next year. This team will do a good job over there at the racetrack. But I think for the drivers, their big thing they got to worry about is brakes because you need to be thinking we're going short track racing with those brake packages. Some of these guys went too light and they could not handle them. And we saw that result. A lot of issues over there at Nashville super speedway. But you know, despite the brake issues, I thought this was a great race and it, it always brings up that debate. You've got, uh, I think it's interesting. Twitter calls them the seven fifty truthers. It's the people who vote on Jeff Gluck's Is It A Good Race poll. Yes, if it's 750. No, if it's 550. And I I think there's also a a vice versa group of that. People who love the 550 and they don't look at the actual race. They just go and vote based on what package because they want a specific one that they're running that week. I personally think the 750 was a great move for this race. I really loved 
seeing them slipping and sliding and struggling, that classic move where you come up on the back of someone and you get them a little bit arrow loose, get them slide up out of the groove. It was great classic racing, and it just makes me think, because it's taken a while. I've been on the 555, I've been on the 550 package, I've been on the 750 package. For me, though, I thought this was one of the better races of the year. I really did. The 750, I think, is starting to win over more for me. I want these cars to be loose. I want them to be sliding. I, I, I want to see that. And we had the perfect scenario over there at Nashville Super Speedway between the hot, hot weather, the slick surface, and the 750 package. It produced excellent racing. And Kyle Larson, of course, on his game, it was unbelievable how he did. And you got to shout out to Eric Amarola. We've been talking about him all year, how he has struggled so much, and they've had so many issues not of their making. Fourth place for Eric Amarola, a huge finish, exactly what that team needed. Some guys on the other side of that scale, though, Martin Truex Jr., he's been surprising me lately. He has not been running great, and you can see that effect over the last few weeks, and I'm starting to grow a little concerned about their championship hopes. Is this going to be a problem? We'll talk about Martin Truex Jr.'s weekend, a penalty he got, and what is going on with the performance of that team. Plus, take a look at the points as they stand heading to the playoffs coming up in a couple of minutes. It's Flag to Flag on Fox Sports 640. It's Flag to Flag on Fox Sports 640, taking a look at all the action from NASCAR in Nashville and a dominating win from Kyle Larson. I'm Jeremy Kaufman, hanging with you guys for the hour, talking some motorsports action. We're going to talk IndyCar 2 coming up in a little bit, but continuing on with the cup action at Nashville Super Speedway. And, you know, we talked about Eric Amarola having a good run, mentioned uh, Kyle Larson because, you know, he was kind of a big storyline leading so much of that race. But what about the other side of the uh, coin here? Martin Truex Jr. Now, Here's the thing. Truex was one of my championship favorites coming into the season. I really expect to see him very competitive, and he has been competitive. He has 541 points. He's in the top five in the overall point standings, but he was further up than that not that long ago. He was the guy in second that I, I thought was going to chase down Denny Hamlin. And he got the win, of course. Uh, he beat Kyle Larson in the Goodyear 400 on Mother's Day, the last time a Hendrick car did not go to victory lane. And here's what I found so interesting, though, about his stats. Take a listen to this, because I haven't really noticed as much that Truex has not been running well, especially because he did have a good run at Sonoma. But Dover was a 19th place finish. Circuit of the Americas, remember, he had that huge accident with Cole Custer, 35th place, 29th in the Coca-Cola 600. The bright spot was the third at Sonoma and 22nd at Nashville. Really, all the Gibbs cars struggled. Kyle was good early, and then... That last run was atrocious for him. I mean, he fell all the way back, got himself a pretty terrible finish outside the top 10, considering where he was running, I should say. Um, but Martin Truex Jr., on the other hand, had an interesting penalty levied against him. And I I'm curious what people think about this, because we saw this twice during the weekend. A and a lot of people were calling this out, saying, are you kidding me? When is this even a rule? It involved pit road entry, and I can tell you, I, like I said, I was listening to the official radio before the start of the Xfinity race, and they made certain references about pit road, reminded them before the green flag how you need to enter, how you need to exit, how you're going to handle the choose cone. There was a lot of different points that race control gave to the teams right before they rolled off of pit road. Apparently, one of those was this single file pit entry rule, which doesn't sound too crazy at first, 
if you're coming down pit road, especially under caution, you got a bunch of cars with you. You don't go next to somebody as you're coming down pit road. It seems simple. Well, Martin Truex Jr. came down pit road by himself in terms of there was no cars right next to him. However, he entered pit road one lane over. He was not in the outside lane. He was a lane over to the inside, and NASCAR nabbed him on that lap 93 pit stop for not entering pit road single file. The only car at the time there, but not in the outside lane. And, I mean, Truex was first and foremost, what in the world is this kind of penalty? Um, However, we, we, we saw this actually earlier in the weekend. A.J. Allmendinger got the same kind of penalty when he tried to go to his pit box. He had the first stall tried to dive in, move over a little bit early before the line, and NASCAR hit him with the same thing. So this doesn't appear to be isolated to me, and while I think the rule in itself, first and foremost, is stupid, NASCAR's got their reason, I'm sure. I think the rule doesn't make much sense. What's the big deal if you're one lane over as long as you're not passing another car entering pit road or whatever they want to say the rule is to that? But... I do not disagree with NASCAR issuing the penalty. I think the rule is stupid, but NASCAR specifically said, you can't do this. In the driver's meeting, they mentioned that. It was a point of reference. It happened to AJ the day before. So it's not like this was some weird, shocking penalty that nobody expected. We saw this called in the Xfinity race. I know that they mentioned, NASCAR said, they reminded the drivers of this before the race in the driver's meeting, and they came back on the radio with more reminders before the green flag. I think the rule is stupid, but they knew what it was, and Truex should have been on the outside lane. It seems pretty black and white. Everybody complains about the gray area in NASCAR, where they're making too many judgment calls. Just let us know what the rule is, point blank. Outside lane, that was what the rule was, point blank, and it seemed pretty simple to me um, and I, I know people were frustrated by the penalty. I'm not arguing that that shouldn't be a rule. I'm simply saying he knew that, or he should have known that, based on what we saw in the Xfinity race and based on what NASCAR says they told the drivers in the driver's meeting. So I'm not going to really go after NASCAR for penalizing Truex because I personally think that if the rule is as clear as they say they stated it, there's no reason to uh, expect him not to get a penalty. So adding insult to injury, that helps Truex get another poor finish. And, uh, you know, most of the Gibbs organization really did not show up uh, in the race at um, uh, Nashville Super Speedway. It was really just kind of an off day for that team in general. Well, another guy who had a pretty bad finish, and this one was another one that got everybody up in arms, was Chase Elliott, who was disqualified. (laughs) You know, it's funny. All these people love to say it's rigged for the popular guy. And my argument's always been, well, how come Dale Jr. never won a championship when somebody says that? Well, how come they DQ'd Chase Elliott for something that none of us would have been able to pick up on if they didn't do it? So I I don't see any uh, favoritism, as some people say, with NASCAR's judgment calls on this. But the rule, again, is really clear in this situation. And I remember when it changed, because we talked about it on this show, that you could get disqualified for loose lug nuts. And it was kind of like, wow, that's that's a big penalty for having lug nuts loose. But it depends on how many. Chase Elliott had five loose lug nuts. And it's not surprising because at the end of the race, if you recall, Chase was dropping back and he was on the radio saying, I might have to pit. I think I have a, a tire going down, a loose wheel, something. And I think the only reason they didn't pit 
is because with the brake issues and the cording, they probably figured it's one of those two. Let's just hope we can ride it out. Loose wheel you can fix pretty quickly. So when you're running in the top 10, you get that gamble. If I stay out and I have a flat tire, I'm going to finish pretty bad when I slam into the wall. If I pit with just a handful of laps to go and lose a lap, and I'm going to end up finishing outside the 20s anyway. That was, I think, the risk that they were going, the gamble. But (laughs) they actually got secret option number three, dead last and lost their stage win because they stayed out. And this is not what I was expecting at first because they had five loose lug nuts. How do you manage to leave five lug nuts loose? And obviously they weren't all on the same wheel because he would have been like Quinn Hauf in turn one and just had his wheel fly off at the start of the race like Quinn did. That wheel would have flown off if there was five loose on the same wheel. They must have left them loose on multiple wheels. And that makes me wonder, okay, what went wrong here? Was this such a rush to get out that, you know, they knew they had to wrestle the lead from Kyle Larson somehow, so they needed to do it on pit road? Was it a situation where Chase Elliott had an issue with a gun? That would make sense. The front and rear, if it's the same set of tires, the fronts or the rears, same guns changing tires, maybe there was a little issue there. Or is this somebody who messed up because you find if they're both on the fronts or the rears, you got the same tire changer there. So I'm sure they're going to be looking at this because a disqualification is horrible for a team of that caliber for chase Elliott to be disqualified from the race. uh, That's a big deal. It's never happened. I think to a Hendrick car since we've changed this rule, it doesn't happen often in the cup series. He ends up with a 39th place finish. Uh, Kurt Busch is a benefactor because he gets credit for winning stage uh, one now because chase Elliott lost his stage win and that helps him close in on that playoff gap. It's getting a lot tighter at the cut line. You know, we got those 10 races left to go in the points and this is where it stands right now. Chris Buescher, he was one of the guys that crashed, had an issue. He's still holding the bubble, but he lost himself some of that gap. He's up by 26 points. That 36th place finish, though, is really going to hurt this team. Uh, I continue to be impressed with uh, especially that 17 in Roush Fenway Racing in the playoffs right now, having a fairly decent year. And honestly, the brake issue, maybe they went with the wrong package, but that's not something you can anticipate when you go to a brand new racetrack like that. You can't really say that they did anything crazy wrong to put themselves in that position, especially when you had this happening across the field from multiple teams. A lot of guys did something wrong and and had brake issues that really cost them. So he sits 26 above the cut line on the above side. Tyler Reddick is 50 up in 15th. He continues to have a very good season for that Richard Childress car. He's right behind his teammate, Austin Dillon. Both of them are in the uh, top 16 right now for the playoffs. Dillon is 14th and he's comfortable 109 points above the cut line. Got himself a 12th place finish. Kevin Harvick. He is up by 150 and Denny Hamlin's up by over 300. So I'm not concerned about either of them. The big question is if somebody wins, this is going to shake everything up because I'm talking Austin Dillon sitting there at 109 and he's going to be doing great at that. That's fine. That's that's pretty good. Well, that's going to drop down by almost 30 points if somebody were to win next week, depending on where everybody finishes. So he's safe right now, but it can change in an instant. Here are the guys who are trying to race their way in and I'm noticing a trend in the last few weeks. The guys below the cut line are closing on Chris Buescher and that bubble spot because I, I'm seeing this when you look at the results the guys above the cut line are finishing in the 18th position, the you know 36th position, 21st, 12th this last week. But you had Kurt Busch, who was sitting in 17th, just 26 points out, got that stage win, finished in the 8th position, another great run, and he's just 26 points out. And we know Kurt Busch has a habit of knocking off one win a year. It hasn't come yet. It's probably going to happen. And if he does knock that win off, it'll make his life much easier. 
Stenhouse is another guy who's really impressing me, the JTD Daughtry crew. Uh, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. is 45 points below the cut line, and he had a great run, sixth place finish over there at Nashville Super Speedway. Um, so I'm really excited to see if these guys are going to be able to close the gap. Uh, a missed opportunity for Matt Benedetto. He finished in the 24th position. They were struggling, 48 points below the cut line, and uh, he still gained a little bit because of Chris Buescher's failure in a 36th place finish, but that was a lost opportunity to gain a ton of ground. You look at Ross Chastain, who is the next guy in points, second place finish. That is what this team needs to do. And all four of those drivers are technically within a race worth of points. Ross Chastain, 50 back. So this could change rapidly at any moment. There's a lot of different things here on the table that might happen with this playoff. It's going to be fun to watch, especially watching that bubble right now with such a small gap between those drivers and some unknowns coming up. You know, we've we've got a lot of new tracks still to be hit in the next couple of months. Uh, Road America's coming up in a couple of weeks, and the cup cars have not been racing there. I look at the list of guys that are below the cut line. Uh, Stenhouse has experience there in the Xfinity car. Benedetto might have run a race, Chastain. But uh, I wonder about, you know, a Kurt Busch uh, and other guys uh, who maybe have not run an Xfinity race at Road America having a bit of a learning curve coming up at Road America, and that could be an opportunity for guys like Stenhouse to capitalize. Now, Chris Buescher, unfortunately, has the experience, too. That's going to make it tough on Stenhouse. So many of these guys have graduated from the Xfinity series that, honestly, the upper hand might go to the guys who were Xfinity competitors over some of these uh, cup guys who have been in the series for a minute because they haven't been running Xfinity races at Road America, especially when it used to be on the weekend with Sonoma. There was no way you were making that trip back and forth. Well, there was also a very big win on Saturday. Now, we've all known this was coming. A lot of people weren't happy to see it. But Kyle Busch has scored his 100th career NASCAR Xfinity Series win. It's a staggering number to think that somebody could ever really do that. Forget that this is a lower division for a minute because I'm the first one to go in when they try to say Kyle has more wins than Richard Petty and say it's not the same. Petty has 200 cup wins. I don't care about the error. They were cup races. And Kyle has 58 cup wins, which is a fantastic number, but it's not 200. That being said, winning in the Xfinity Series still, even in a lower division, it it takes a lot. There are a lot of races you don't win. You still don't have a more than 50-50 win percentage in anything that you're going to do as a race car driver. Kyle Busch hits 100. He's more than double of Mark Martin, who seemed like he won every week in the 90s. So to, to think that, Martin had so many wins and Kyle has come out here and done this in what is, I think, a relatively short amount of time, 360 starts. He has 100 wins in 360 starts. That is 27.8% of the races he has entered. He has won in the Xfinity Series. He's on a roll this year, three for three. And um, I, I don't think anybody's surprised he got there that soon. He dominated this Nashville race, 123 of 189 laps he led, but it also was not easy. I got to give a lot of credit to Justin Allgaier. This team is looking as good as I think they have ever looked. They're really giving it to these cup guys. He's been able to get a couple of wins this year. He's beaten cup drivers for wins, and he had a legitimate shot of beating Kyle Busch. If he was able to stay in front of him, I think the cautions just fell in the wrong way. The moment of that race was the big crash on the front straightaway that started when AJ, or when um, uh, Justin Allgaier, rather, was side-by-side with Kyle Busch. They slid up the track. Brandon Jones dives to the inside with an opportunity to go three wide, but in all the commotion behind them, we had that huge crash to send Austin Sindrick piling head-on into the wall in a major impact, 
and Kyle Busch was just ahead at the last scoring loop. That kept him out in front. We know how good he is at restarts. He controlled uh, quite a few restarts late in that race, and he earned that victory over Justin Allgaier, held him off to win by just over a second. And now he's got that big number 100 win. So here's the question everybody wants to know, though. What's going to happen? Is Kyle Busch going to retire from the Xfinity Series? Because it's not something he's only said one or two times. On numerous occasions, he said, if I get to 100, I'm done. Backing out, I can stop running Xfinity, I'll be happy with 100. So now, here we are. Let's win 100. Is he going to stop? And we don't really know yet. Now, uh, in his defense, I will say one thing, because some people are like, well, you're going to be racing more races this year, and why are you doing that? They're sold. He has a contract. He has commitments to sponsors. I don't think anybody was expecting him to just stop cold turkey if he had more races already scheduled. But next year, does Kyle Busch come back to the Xfinity Series? Does he run these races? And he seems to be kind of on the side of, well, we don't have anything booked right now, so... We'll see. And I wonder if Kyle's going to drop out of the series, even though he does love running it so much. Now, I'm sure we'll still see him in trucks. He's got a little ways to go before he hits 100 over there. But um, either way, everybody has been, at least the Kyle Busch haters, counting down to this 100th career win because I think that Kyle Busch says he's going to be gone after the 100th career win and maybe we can uh, get a little bit more diversity in the winners in the series. The guy's just good. There's nothing else you can say about it. A monster achievement. Uh, shout out Comcast, too. It was kind of cool. I saw they donated 100 laptops to uh, kids who were uh, struggling and can't afford them to help them with school in the Nashville area for Kyle Busch's 100th career win. So that was a really cool move on their part. Xfinity's always been a great partner for the series. It was awesome to see them do that. And uh, another big win, too, on Friday night, the trucks on track. And Ryan Priest became the fifth driver to win in his first truck start. Uh, great run, uh, won the second career race for David Gilliland's team driving that number 17 truck. And uh, he is one for one. Now, here comes the challenging part. Can he go two for two? He's got a second race booked. It's this weekend. Ryan Priest is going to be in the Pocono truck race, 150 miles coming up on Saturday. And the question we're all wondering, can Ryan Priest get himself in victory lane and then have back-to-back wins and go two for two? Because that's pretty incredible. Um, and I think we're seeing two. You give him some good equipment. Ryan Priest is an impressive talent. We know that from his modified days. But uh, first NASCAR National Series win was definitely a big deal for that team. And it was great to see a guy like Ryan Priest, kind of like with Doug Kobe, who won that SRX race, the premier race the uh, last weekend, uh, not this past last weekend, actually, uh, two weeks ago, uh, over there at Stafford as the track champion. He went ahead and got that win, and now he's got himself an opportunity to drive a truck coming up at Bristol. So made a big difference for him. Hopefully this win will show some people, hey, Ryan Priest, he's got talent. He's been very good with the JTD Daughtry team uh, as an open team this year, having some pretty incredible runs. So we'll see if he's able to keep that momentum up as we continue to move on through the season and uh, maybe get himself another win this weekend. would we'll probably put him in a great position as he tries to... Uh, either stick out a new ride or maybe get another contract here with JTD Daughtry Racing to keep racing for them in the future. Well, coming up in a couple of minutes, we got to talk some IndyCar racing because it was a wild race at Road America. Another crazy finish, and Penske is on the wrong end of it every single time. And it has been a rough year for Penske. In fact, one of the worst they've ever had. We'll break down the numbers and tell you what I think, whether or not they're going to be able to turn it around this season. More Flag to Flag is up in a minute on Fox Sports 640. 
You know, it's been a great year for motorsports. It's Jeremy Kaufman at Fox Sports 640, and this is Flag to Flag. We talked a lot of NASCAR action, but we got to touch on some of the other great motorsports going on out there. IndyCar was on track at Road America. We had SRX for the second race this weekend. Uh, Formula One was out at Circuit Paul Ricard uh, out there in France. And uh, the good news is every single major form of motorsports was up in the ratings this weekend, including Formula One, which uh, brought in over a million viewers for the first time in two years on uh, ESPN. That was pretty cool. Uh, to see them, and uh, there was a pretty interesting strategy down to the finish of that race, which was exciting to watch. But let's talk some American racing here. IndyCar racing at Road America, which was a fantastic show. You know, first of all, I I thought it was interesting. There were some comments made comparing the two circuits. Road America to Circuit Paul Ricard. And, you know, a lot of these guys say this is a fun track when it comes to Road America. Nothing to knock Formula One, but... When you look at the character of Road America, the runoffs with grass everywhere and having to be on such a perfect line, the bumpiness of that racetrack, it is such an exciting place to go race. I can't wait to see the Cup Cars try this track out in a couple of weeks. July 4th is going to be that race. But IndyCar got the first crack at it this weekend, and they uh, had a bit of an eventful one. More cautions than we've seen at Road America in uh, the last couple of years, and this is a track that frequently actually scores caution-free races. So I thought that was a little bit surprising, but the story of the season is these young guys getting victories left and right, and we're, we're seeing guys that win that we don't normally see win, and the guys who we're used to seeing winning are struggling this year. Alex Pillow, he's got his second career win, and get this, it's the first time that a driver for Chip Ganassi is racing in the IndyCar has won two races in a season, not named Scott Dixon, since Dario Franchitti ran from them in 2011. That's how long it's been since there was another really, really competitive Chip Ganassi car that could win multiple races during a year. Pelo is leading the standings after grabbing that win by 28 over Paddle Award and got the win with a little bit of help from Penske Trouble. This keeps happening. This is the third week in a row. And the second week in a row that it was Joseph Newgarden, but the third week for Penske, where they had this stuff look like it was in the bag, and it slipped away from them. So this weekend, the story, 32 of 55 laps. That's pretty dominant for Joseph Newgarden. Really, the only times he wasn't out front is just when the strategy was swinging and they'd come to pit road and other guys would stay out and you'd be waiting for it to cycle through. But on this final restart, the two had some sort of electrical issue, faded all the way back to 21st position when we had that late race caution, again, you wonder, did the caution mess them up? Uh, would they have been able to make it without issues if they didn't have that extra heat cycle of slowing down and taking another restart? And who knows? It could have happened either way. But the bottom line is Newgarden had a race stolen from him. And Alex Pillow, with a heads up move to see how slow he was out of the blue and dodge him and make the pass, scores a great win for the team. Puts him in a good position with almost a half a race lead worth of points ahead of Paddle Award, who finished in the back half of the top 10 and got himself that victory. Now, for Joseph Newgarden, it's the second week in a row that he's been passed late in the race. It was two to go this week, three to go go at uh, the second uh, race at Belle Isle. Paddle Award caught him and blew by him, and that was a devastating finish to that race as the tires were just gone on Joseph. And then the day before that, the biggest heartbreak of them all was Will Powers' issue that everybody was talking about. They made the decision to red flag the race, which I was on board with. If you can red flag it and restart it, go ahead. It doesn't matter how bad the wreck is. Um, I know there was a lot of debate, and unfortunately, we had some scheduling issues, and I wasn't able to really touch on it last week. But um, with, with Will Powers' situation, they probably should have let him get a fan a little sooner. It made sense. He's the first car stopped. He's got the biggest risk. Um, either way, it cost Penske 
really just three shots a row, three shots in a row where they could have been in victory lane. And they lost all three of them, two of them being mechanical issues that nobody saw coming. So that is a tough pill to swallow. But here's an interesting statistic that I did not realize about Team Penske. Did you know that this is the only the second time that this organization has gone this far into a season without scoring a win? And the last time that happened, they went winless for the entire year. So I'm sure you got that in the back of your mind, like, we got to just, we got to break through. We don't want a winless season, especially the the first season with it opened up to the fans as Roger, the owner, pretty terrible to have them go winless, but it has been a rough start for Penske. And, you know, you look at their point standings, Joseph Newgarden uh, and Simon Pagano are fourth and fifth, but they lost some good points. Newgarden, who was about to win that race. Now he's fourth 88 back because of this mechanical failure. Will Power, he's way out of this. He's not even in the top five in points. And that's somebody we expect to be right up there battling for the championship. So the question I'm thinking is, will Penske win this year? And honestly, I, you know, I look at what we have coming up. I look at the drivers they have. I look at the performance and I look at mainly what stopped them from winning. Issues, mechanical issues that might be outside of their control. I personally think that Team Penske has had more bad luck than bad performance so far this season. You know, we just said it. They could have won the last three races. If they're running outside, back outside the top 10, or, you know, the best they can do is get a fifth place car, I turn around and tell you, I don't think Penske's winning this year. But because it's bad luck that seems to be the driving factor of their issues, I think Roger Penske and his team, you can't keep a guy down and a team down for that long when they're that good. The luck is going to come around eventually. These guys are going to get a win. I don't know how many it'll be. I don't know if all their drivers will win, but I think in these last couple of races we still have left in the season, we are going to see a winner come out of that group from Penske and get them in victory lane. I don't think we're going to see their second winless season in the team's real, their history, because this, as I said, this is the longest they've ever gone without winning a race. And the only other time they did this, they didn't win at all. So I know that they're thinking, we don't want to have that happen again. There's nothing worse than a winless season. And especially when you're driving for the captain, there's a lot of pressure on you. You got to perform. You got to do well. And again, I look at the results here. Will Power, he finished third. He got himself a good result. Uh, You know, there was a, a Penske car in the top 10. And if, if we didn't have an issue with Newgarden, he would have been right up there up front winning this race. So I'm not concerned about Penske. I think they've just had a terrible luck, uh, streak of luck during the course of this season. Uh, taking a look at your results, Alex Pillow got the win. Uh, another young guy who's been winning a lot, Colton Herta. He's sitting there in second. Great run at Road America. Mention Will Power in third. Scott Dixon is so calm, cool, and collected. He finishes in the fourth position, and he's quiet about it. This happens every year. There's a couple of races where Scott Dixon seems out to lunch or struggles or has a problem earlier in the year, and he seems like he's really far out of the championship. But the next thing you know, he is chasing them down so fast, and we get to the final race, and there he is. He's third, third in points, and he's 53 out. It's more than a race, but just more than the race. Give him a couple more weeks. I bet you he's right in the thick of this with that fourth place finish. We're going to keep seeing him in the top five week in, week out. Romain Grosjean, I can't speak enough about how great this guy's doing driving for Dale Coyne and Rick Ware Racing. He gets a fifth place finish. Uh, his buddy, uh, Kevin Magnuson, his old Formula One teammate, made his IndyCar debut. And I actually thought was doing a good job before they got off the track and weren't able to finish the race, unfortunately, with an issue. Ended up finishing back uh, outside the top 20 with a DNF. 
But prior to that, I thought Kevin Magnuson was actually holding his own, doing a very good job of these cars. I'd like to see him get some more opportunities. Unfortunately, he's in the car because of an injury. That's the unfortunate part. We've been having that happen lately. Two drivers had to sit out, you know, Felix Rosenquist and... uh, we also had Brinus VK, which was really disappointing. He didn't make a start this weekend because he was in this thick of things for the championship. He got his first career win. He's been running well, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to make a start this weekend, although it was a good job uh, for the guy covering him. Uh, Oliver Askew, just outside the top 10, had a pretty solid day. Rounding out the rest of your top 10, Marcus Erickson came home in sixth. It's Alexander Rossi in seventh. Takumo Sato, Pato Award, and Max Chilton scores a top 10 finish out there at Road America, and they got the week off, but we'll be seeing them coming up soon here at Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course. Uh, And a quick note, too, on the schedule. I know a lot of people have been waiting to see what's going to happen to the Toronto date that got canceled um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The borders are closed. Well, unfortunately, they're not going to be filling that slot, so we're going to lose one race on the schedule. It will be a 16-race calendar this season for those teams. Well, I'll tell you, the Cup Series is getting crowded. And I think it's great, but at the same time, I'm a little worried. I know charters aren't a popular thing, and and it's great for business because you're guaranteed to be in a race. There's no scenario you're not going to be in a race, and it guarantees NASCAR a a full field of cars that are going to have to race. That's the deal with it. But we only start 40 cars, and the popularity is growing around this sport. There is a rumor swirling that a new manufacturer could be coming soon. Now, I'm not going to swing one way or the other. Everybody keeps saying it's Honda. But I'm just going to tell you that this rumor was going around on Twitter, and I have absolutely no evidence to the contrary or supporting it. So I have no idea if this is going to happen. I wouldn't put much stock in it, but who knows? I didn't expect all these different changes we had this year either. I was going to put no stock in those. So we might have a fourth manufacturer, which is the only thing that can open up the charter system to more cars before 2024, because there's a contractual agreement between NASCAR and the teams limiting these charters. But they are going for high prices right now, and it all started with Cowlick Racing, They're going to be a two-car operation in the Cup Series next year. Justin Haley got the promotion. Big uh, deal for him. Congratulations. Getting a Cup Series ride, and A.J. Allmendinger is going to make some starts. But the second car is chartered. So that's going to be a full-time car. Uh, Potentially having some other drivers uh, fill into the seat there. We'll see how that plays out. Both of those charters came from Spire Motorsports. One of them was being leased to Trackhouse Racing, uh, which you are allowed to lease it for a year. So they were going to have to find a new charter next year. But it is a little unfortunate because... You know, I I imagine this team was probably going to consider buying this charter, and they kind of got it sold out from under them for a pretty hefty price. Rumors of up to $10 million for those charters uh, that Calduk paid. And you're seeing those prices go so high because there's just a limited supply of them, and you have all these teams coming up. You know, we talk about this. GMS Racing announced that they're going to be coming into the Cup Series next year full-time. They want themselves a charter. 2311 and Trackhouse both have said in the last week or two They want a second car next year, so they're going to be looking for another charter. Trackhouse needs to buy one just for the 99. These things are going to be in major demand, so where do you get them from? you got to imagine you're going to try and buy them off Rick Ware. You're going to try and go and buy them off Spire, who is still keeping one of them for the 7 car, so they're still going to have a charter. They had three, but my big question that I'm, I'm waiting on right here is, are there going to be enough seats at the table? Or are we going to see a team that wants to go cup racing, not able to get a charter and sitting there on the open side with all these other open cars? Because if, you know, we buy all these charters up from Rick Ware and all these other teams, they're probably still going to show up to the racetrack. They're going to want to be there. They're going to race for those open spots. Hopefully it'll be a larger field. This new car is a lot cheaper. It puts everyone on a level playing field. And a lot of people are seeing this as an opportunity to make their way to the cup series. 
Uh, we haven't heard about Junior Motorsports, but they said this might be the best time. They don't know. The only team we know for sure that's not looking is Kyle Busch Motorsports. They are not looking to go cup racing right now. But it is still a crowded field of teams looking for a charter. Personally, I wish we could just throw it out the window, say, screw it. I like the way the Xfinity and truck fields are set. You make it in the top 31, and everybody who doesn't make it has to uh, go battle it out for a couple of provisionals based on their points. I don't care who you are back there, because it's hard to miss a race if you have uh, high point standing. So I I don't think that's a risky system that would affect anything. I think it would work great. I think it adds drama to a qualifying session. I just know that there's a contract, and uh, when there's contracts and legal stuff and a bunch of money involved— there's nothing you can do about it. Why do you think the schedule waited so long to change? They had a five-year deal. They couldn't break with all these racetracks. They couldn't do anything. Same situation here. They can't break this charter agreement that they've made with all of these teams. So we're kind of stuck with it, and it might hinder the efforts of teams to get into the Cup Series. I sure hope that's not the case. But we are looking at a situation where uh, I can think of between GMS, two Cowlick cars, another car for Trackhouse, another car for 2311, I mean, that, that, that's six cars right there that uh, would need charters. Two of them have been taken. Cowlick's got him. He's good. We know he's going to be there. He's got those charters. The question is, what's going to happen with those other four cars? Are they going to be able to expand? Are they going to be able to find a charter? Are they going to have to race as an open team? Is Ryan Priest's team trying to find him a charter at JTG Jawtree because they lost the charter for the 37? He's been open this whole year. So many different moving parts to the system that really could affect the landscape of the Cup Series coming up this weekend, so or uh, next year, rather. So it's going to be an interesting story to follow along with, and we'll keep you updated right here on Flag to Flag every Wednesday, of course, on Fox Sports 640. You can catch us at 7 o'clock, or you can get us after any live sports that may be on. Plus, the podcast goes up on Thursdays at foxsports640.com. You can get all the latest there as well. Well, let's take a look at this weekend. It is going to be one of those races without qualifying and practice. So we do have Kyle Larson on the pole with William Byron for the Saturday Cup race. It's the doubleheader weekend at Pocono. Kevin Harvick, Joey Logano, Kyle Busch, Ross Chastain, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., Kurt Busch, Christopher Bell, and Denny Hamlin will be making up your top 10 starting positions for the first race. And a reminder how it's going to work this weekend when we finish up the Saturday race, they're going to invert the top 20 cars in the field, and they will start uh, in that reverse order, and then 21st through last will be whatever order they finished in. They will start that for the Sunday event. A lot of racing going on this weekend. The NASCAR Xfinity Series poll goes to Harrison Burton. Justin Allgaier are going to be starting right there. A.J. Allmendinger, Brandon Jones, and Jeb Burton in the top ten or top five with Daniel Hemrick, Noah Gragson, Michael Annette, Jeremy Clements, and Riley Herbst rounding out that top ten. Noah Gragson in desperate need of a good run as he continues to hover uh, uncomfortably close to that playoff cut line. I know they need something to happen, and... In the truck series, Todd Gilliland, he's going to lead him down from the start-finish line. Zane Smith will be starting in second. Ben Rhodes, Austin Hill, Matt Crafton, Stuart Friesen, John Hunter Nemechek, last week's winner, Ryan Priest, making his second uh, career start in the truck series. Jack Wood and Sheldon Creed will make up that top ten and keeping out for some of the drivers in the field. Kyle Busch will be making a truck start, his final one of the season. He'll be rolling off in the 22nd position. And for those of you looking who's going to be in the Xfinity race, uh, not a big field of cup drivers. In fact, I don't think we really got any uh, major cup drivers entered in this weekend's Xfinity race. So we won't have a situation like last week. Josh Berry is going to be in the 31. He'll be driving that car for Jordan Anderson. And he finished up with Junior Motorsports. Jordan Anderson Racing has given him that opportunity. But at Junior Motorsports, Sam Mayer, who just turned 18, is going to have the opportunity to go ahead and run some races for the remainder of the season. Going to be doing that um, starting this weekend at Pocono in the A-Car. He's got some big shoes to fill. 
All right, well, let's take a look at where you can catch all the action this weekend. It is a long list of racing, and it all starts on Friday evening. Come home from work, sit in front of the TV, watch some ARCA racing. The General Tire hashtag Anywhere is Possible 200 is Friday, 6 p.m. on Fox Sports 1. Then you can catch the uh, Saturday Pocono Green, two, or pardon me, Saturday is the CRC Brake Lean 150 NASCAR Camping World Truck Series race. That's at noon on Fox Sports 1, plus the first of two cup races and a interesting sponsor here. I wonder if this is going to open up a whole new market of sponsors, the Pocono Organics CBD. 325 is Saturday at 3 on NBCSN. Then we jump over to Saturday night. Eldora Speedway hosts SRX, 8 p.m. on CBS. Sunday, another triple header day. It starts with the Styrian Grand Prix, the first of a double header at the Red Bull Ring in Austria, 9 a.m. on ESPN. And of course, you can catch the Xfinity race. That's going to be at noon on NBCSN, followed by Cup Racing. They'll explore the Pocono Mountains, 350, 3.30 p.m. on NBCSN. We'll recap it all for you next week on Flag to Flag. Thanks so much for hanging with us.